0: This is day 223 of our daily Bible reading. We'll be completing the book of Colossians today, chapters 1 through 4. Lord Heavenly Father, you are so high, you are so majestic, you are so wonderful to your creation, and yet your creation rejects you. It's so hard to hear. It's so disheartening. but Lord, we know that you have called us into a higher purpose. And Lord, because of your calling in our lives, you've given us affection toward you. You've given us love, the same love that you've shown us, we want to give back to you. But not only in word, but also in deed. We want to make sure that we are demonstrating and acting in love by being obedient to your word. Help us to understand that better today as we go into your scripture, that we are responsible to demonstrate our love for you in obedience to your commands, and to seek you every day. Please bless the reading of this word, in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the Word of Truth, the Gospel, which has come to you, just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you also, since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescues us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. And He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven." And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, that is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to all his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those who are at Laodicea, And for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him, and established in your faith, just as you are instructed, and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of this world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, And in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and all authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he had seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things That are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience, and in them you also once walked, when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freedman, but Christ is all and in all. Which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell in you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, In word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Wives, be subject to your husbands, as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children, so that they will not lose heart. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service, as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord, rather than for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know about our circumstances, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number. They will inform you about the whole situation here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas's cousin, Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him and also Jesus, who was called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured and all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings, and also Demas. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha, and the church that is in her house. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. Congratulations on finishing the book of Colossians. Let's look over a few things that we read from here that are important for us to take away today. So as usual, Paul begins his letters with greetings and admonishing the people that this is addressed to. And then he goes into the pastoral side of his ministry. Because he's one of those people who, as an apostle, he has to admonish the people and give them instructions of what his expectations are, as well as how to further grow in Christ. And so he starts off with a prayer for their growth. And you see that through the second half of chapter 1. For example, in verse 10, he'll say that, They need to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Can we say that we're doing that? Because this is basic church 101. This is basic believer behavior. If we're not trying to walk in respect to God's commands and his expectations for us, if we're not trying to please him in all things, and we're not bearing any fruit, then there's something very wrong. How do we bear fruit? Well, we have results from our faith. I'm not saying that the works save you, because they don't, but there should be evidence of what you believe by how you serve your church, the kind of reputation you built for yourself within the workplace, or within your family, something to show that you are godly and that you are pursuing godliness. How well do you know your Bible? Do you attend Bible studies at church? Are you volunteering and active in serving your church? Those are all healthy signs that you are walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. And if you're not, then there's always opportunities to do better. Why? Why should we do this? Well, verse 13, Because he rescued us from the domain of darkness, and he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's why. He saved you from the darkness. He is your master now. Therefore, it is fitting for a slave to do the will of his master. He saved you from your sins and has redeemed you into his heavenly kingdom. That's the only reason we need. Then he gives a beautiful picture of what Jesus is like in his character. It says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So we have to be careful with this one. He has all the rights belonging to the firstborn. That doesn't mean that he was a created being, okay? This is where a lot of people get this wrong. This is showing that he comes first. He is sovereign over all creation. Just how God the Father is the father figure, the Son is the firstborn, because he has the inheritance of all the rights and all the privileges that come with being the Son of the Sovereign God, even though Jesus is God. And so it's a very interesting dynamic. But you cannot understand this as him being a created being. Because yes, he did come into the world as a human, but his spirit has been from eternity past. He is God. So we cannot get this wrong. He is not a created being, and if he was, he is not God he would be no different than an angel, or us, and he's well beyond that. So we cannot compare him to a created being, because that's not what it's saying there. For by him all things were created. So Jesus Christ is credited here as being the one who created the entire universe, both in the heavens and on earth. So Jesus is also the one who created all the angels. So that's also something to know. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So everything was done by him. So that's why I've said it before, but if you look look back in the book of Genesis and you look at the creation account, anytime you see it said, and God said That's Jesus. It really just changes the entire vantage point of the creation account when you look at it like that. But it is glorious to look at. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So, he holds everything together in its time, and without him, nothing would be able to stay intact. Nothing would exist apart from him. Verse 18 says that he is also the head of the church. So, the pastor is not the head of the church. The people are not the head of the church. Christ is. And any church that doesn't have Christ at the head of the church is not a real church. That is a temple glorifying man. But it is not a church of God. Then it says that he is the firstborn of the dead. Now, Yes, he is the firstborn from the dead, because he is the only one that has come back from the dead and was victorious from it. So there were other people who have been raised in the past, but this is the one time who resurrected by his own power. So there's a big difference there, because you see the people that Elijah raised, that Elisha raised. We can't compare them to Jesus, because... They used God's power to regenerate them. But yet, Christ raised himself by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the two cannot be compared, not even remotely close. In verse 21, he mentions how we were formerly alienated and hostile in mind. Alienated from who? From God. We were engaged in evil deeds. That was our former state. And yet now he has reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. So we have been regenerated. We have been made that new creature he describes elsewhere. Holy and blameless and beyond reproach. I don't know about you, but I don't feel very holy. and I'm definitely not blameless. But again, this is the imputation of Christ's righteousness in us. In the eyes of God, we are righteous. We know that we fail in many things, and it's not like God is fooled into thinking that we're perfect. He knows that we are fallen beings, and he knows that we make mistakes. But what he's talking about here is that your soul is sealed with righteousness. Your soul is sealed with eternal life. We know that it is Christ's righteousness in us. We don't have any of our own But when we go to our heavenly realm that we are now heirs of, then we will be able to see what God means by us being righteous in his sight. But until then, we have to believe that this is so. Then Paul finishes chapter 1 by showing what Christ had commissioned him to do, and that was to take the gospel all over the place and to reveal mysteries of how Christ can be in you, how the Holy Spirit can be indwelling you. And so that's why he's doing what he's doing. And then he goes into chapter 2 and he talks about how Christianity should be well above worldly philosophy. So this is a struggle throughout this area of the world because philosophy is king in this area, not just in Colossae, but Also, if we recall when Paul was in Athens, how people sit around and just try to discuss philosophy and existentialism and so on and so forth. And so the world at this point is trying to figure out where they fit into all this. And so the worst thing that we can do, though, is lump this Christianity that we believe in to be just another religion, or just some belief system, or just an opinion. Because it is not an opinion, we know that it is an objective fact. God really exists, whether you like it or not. Christ saves his people, whether you like it or not. The gospel needs to be preached, whether you like it or not. That is reality, And so it's very different than just an opinion. It is different than a philosophy, because philosophy is temporal, but a relationship with Jesus Christ is eternal. Big difference. And he knows that there's going to be people that will come to the church at one point and try to dissuade them. They'll use this very fancy talk, and they will be able to put up a good persuasive argument, and... They'll try to convince you to stop believing what you're believing, or to twist it. But what does he say in verse 6? As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted, and now being built up in him, and established in your faith, just as you were instructed, and overflowing with gratitude. Hold fast to what you know to be true. Stay rooted in that to where you're not going to be moved when these things come, where you can filter through that garbage easily because you know the truth that is in God's Word. That is what's required. That's why it's most important that we read our Bibles and we pray. Then the other thing that he mentions here is how highly exalted Christianity is over legalism. And we go back to the same argument about circumcision. We don't necessarily need to be physically circumcised to be a Christian. But it is the circumcision of the heart, which is described in the even as far back as the Old Testament. Our circumcision was not made with hands. It was a spiritual circumcision. We have been buried with Christ through baptism. Now, this isn't to mean that baptism contributes to your salvation, but it is a spiritual baptism. The Holy Spirit regenerating you is a spiritual baptism. It is not the same thing as sprinkling of water or dipping yourself in a pool. Very different understanding here. Then he reminds us in verse 13 that we were dead in our transgressions. We were incapable of saving ourselves. And we were in uncircumcision, which is that of being in the flesh, having a mere fleshly existence with no spiritual truth in it at all. But he, Jesus Christ, canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. What is that? That's the law, right? He canceled out the certificate of debt, and he nailed it to the cross. So that is why he's able to have that transfer of ownership, because his blood paid the price. That is redemption. But not only did he do that, did he save us from this law, but also it says that he disarmed the rulers and authorities. That's interesting. The literal word here in the Greek is stripped. They were stripped, as in they were their weapons and their armor were taken away, and that's how you would see it in military terms. So all the weapons of warfare that the enemy has, was taken away because of the cross. Can you believe that? That the cross is so powerful that evil can't touch it. And there's no wonder that when you're redeemed by the Holy Spirit, that you cannot be corrupted any longer. What I mean by corruption is you cannot lose your salvation. It cannot be tampered with. They could try to get to you mentally and psychologically, but they can't touch your spirit at that point. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise as a pledge. They were disarmed. And then he made a public display of them because he triumphed over death and sin. And he put Satan and his minions to shame. The ultimate shame is what's going to happen to them in the book of Revelation. But at the cross, he proved everyone wrong. He proved that he was God by rising on the third day like he said he would. And all those people that wanted to crucify him had no idea what they were doing. That's why Jesus asked them to be forgiven as well. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But we do. And I'm trying to save them. I will save those that belong to me. Then he compares Christianity to other mystical teachings and asceticism, where you have things like Buddhism, where they you have to prepare your body and your mind and sacrifice all worldly good things in order to be able to achieve enlightenment. He shows us that those are all fleshly things, and they have no spiritual value at all. It's like the Hindu concept of karma, where if you do well as a human being in this life, when you die, you will be reborn. You'll be reincarnated as something hopefully better. So being above a man would be that of like a god to where you can achieve nirvana. But all of that is a load of baloney. So we don't need to believe any of that. And because that is all, like is described here in verse 23, that is a self-made religion. It's self-abasement, and in some ways, severe treatment of the body. It's disgusting what the world religions do. And we have no affiliation or association with them. We do not even need to entertain those ideas. So, completely reject them. In chapter 3, he reminds us of where our priorities need to be. We need to seek the things above. We need to look into the heavenly realms, and we need to set our minds on the things of God, not on the things of earth. Does that mean you have to sacrifice all earthly things? No, that's not what it's saying. But what it's saying is that your priorities should be seeking godly things, spiritual things, things of truth, so that You're not wasting your time. There are so many distractions and entertainments and time wasters that we could avoid in order to not only better ourselves in godly wisdom, but also to put our hands to work and do something with them. What I mean is ministry, evangelism, outreach, equipping the saints hey, that sounds familiar. That's why we do what we do. That's what we're supposed to do as Christians, not be idle, not be waiting for Sunday to be a Christian, but be a Christian every day. What are you doing for the glory of God every day? And so that's what he's challenging us to do here. In addition, he wants us to lay aside our old nature. We've died, and we have been reborn in Christ. So all the things of this world that hold us back and distract us, we need to discard them. I speak as one that struggles with that all the time. So I can't tell you that I've mastered this, but I know that this is what is expected of us. Now the problem is, is that this cannot remain just a cerebral understanding. It needs to actually happen. And try it. You'll see that such glorious things come out of it. Then Paul gives us a contrast of what we're supposed to set aside, and there's a list of things that we're supposed to set aside. And then in verse 12, he shows us what to equip ourselves with, what to put on, what our existence should now be defined as. And so they are wonderful, godly attributes. Because ultimately, why do we do what we do? In verse 17, This is the ultimate goal. Whatever you do in word in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. That is what we're supposed to be doing. That is our end result. If we are indeed slaves of Christ, we want to see our Master magnified and glorified. That should be your heart's desire. And if it's not... There's a telltale sign there's something very wrong. If you're more interested in exalting yourself or men instead of God, then your priorities are backwards. We need to focus on the things of God exclusively. Verse 23 is another good one to memorize. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Well, my boss never recognizes me. My wife or my husband, they never thank me for the work that I do. I serve the church for years, and I never even get a thank you. Those things are bad, yes, but ultimately, why are you doing what you're doing? Are you doing it so that people can give you attention and recognition? Or are you doing it because you want to serve the Lord, and you want to make Him proud? We need to readjust why we do things. If we are doing it for men, we will be disappointed often. But if we're doing it for God, we know that that is going to bring out the best in us. And we know that the Lord will be pleased, and we will be storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Do all your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. We already know that the inheritance is coming. And because of that, The least that I can do is behave in such a fashion that is deserving of it. Why? It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. That is your true master. That is the one that is always watching you. The one that is always working on your behalf. Why wouldn't you want to serve him with the whole heart? And then in chapter 4, he gives us some more practical applications for our lives. Such as addressing masters, how they treat their slaves, which we don't have that today, but the best example would be a leader, how they treat their subordinates. So that's a fair assessment there. Then he says to devote yourselves to prayer, to keep alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, but also praying for the people who are in the ministry of being a missionary, being an evangelist that the gospel will be spread. We should often pray for the spreading of the gospel. There are many saints who need prayer, and we need to be the ones to help them as a global church. And then again, he reminds us to conduct ourselves with wisdom toward outsiders. We don't want to damage our witness. We want to be Christ-like to them. We may be the only Christ they ever meet, and so we need to be very careful how we interact with the world around us. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. So, salt, as we know, is a preservative, and not only that, but it prevents the spoiling and rotting of something. So we want to encourage people. We want to speak kindly to people. We want to be patient with them. And ultimately, we want to use those relationships to open an opportunity for the gospel. And then, of course, as he usually does, Paul will finish his letter with personal greetings and all the people who are wanting to greet the people of Colossae. And that completes the book of Colossians. Tomorrow, we will begin the Thessalonians. And that's all I have for today. Thank you for listening. I'm Ryan, and we'll see you next time. Take care, and God bless you.